This podcast is produced in Amiskwichi, Wiskaiken, also known as Edmonton, on the traditional lands referred to as Treaty 6 territory, a place that has been a meeting ground, traveling route, and home for many indigenous peoples since time immemorial, including the Cree, Dene, Nakota Sioux, Soto, Blackfoot, and Métis, whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence and enrich our vibrant community. Welcome to ESO Offstage. I'm your host and ESO double bassist, Max Cardilli. Stuck in between the virtuosic violins and the charming celli, the viola seldom gets the spotlight. This episode, let's take a closer look at this beautiful and often misunderstood instrument of the orchestra. I sat down at my computer, went into Google, and typed, why is the viola, to see the most frequently asked questions about this instrument. Google suggested questions like, why is the viola a joke? Why is the viola made fun of? And the most searched, why is the viola hated? Now that might sound shocking to you, but if you hang around orchestral musicians or string players long enough, there's a certain type of inside joke you'll inevitably hear. No, I'm not talking about classical music puns, which are honestly too hot to handle. There's a specific niche of joke, so popular that it even has its own Wikipedia page. Viola jokes. Um, viola jokes are, are part of the uh, tradition of stereotyping violists as lesser than and incapable, and they range from one-liners to very complicated long stories with a good payoff at the end. This is the ESO's assistant principal violist, Ethan Filner. I went to a restaurant and I left my viola in the backseat of my car. When I got back to the car, it had been broken into. The back window was shattered and there were two violas in the backseat. <laughs> Probably my favorite is, is this. So the scene is in an orchestra rehearsal, the conductor is doing a run through of a piece and has to stop suddenly because the last chair violist is sobbing uncontrollably and is not playing. The conductor's like, Maurice, what's the problem? And Maurice responds through his tears. The oboe player has detuned one of my strings. Well, fix it and let's get on with it. And the viola player through his tears again says, he won't tell me which one. <laughs> Are these jokes harmful or are they in good fun? Well, I think they're in good fun. Like when someone tells a viola joke, they're not telling a joke about you. They're just telling a viola joke. The viola has long been much maligned for a number of reasons. Primarily because it's usually as the inner voice kind of hidden in the music and it's not 
spotlighted. There aren't a lot of really famous and popular viola concerti that help players shine and show off what it can do. But I've come to really love being surrounded by the other voices sitting in front of the brass or in front of the percussion or in front of the winds that are adding so many layers of music to blend with. I love being in the middle of it physically and musically. Viola jokes. Oh, man. Here's ESO principal violist Keith Hamm. Well, I was uh, never particularly offended by them. I've seen, I've <laughs> seen people, I've seen people get their nose at a joint when they hear a viola joke, but I, <laughs> it doesn't really bother me. What's the only thing a violinist can actually do better than a violist? I don't know. It's play the viola. <laughs> <laughs> and I like it because you get to laugh a little bit at the violinist too, who's stuck in their room uh, practicing eight hours a day and never actually getting proficient at anything else in life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, after our, you know, modest amount of practice time, we still have uh, a chance to work on the car and, uh, you know, build a deck and learn to play a sport and, you know. Well, why is the viola the butt of so many jokes? The idea of a dedicated viola career is relatively new, I think, to be that focused on on it as its own instrument. You know, there was a time when there were a lot of violinists playing the viola and that was what you heard and maybe they didn't spend that much time working on it. And for me, the viola is a lot harder than the violin. I always think it's kind of like the violin is a is a Ferrari and the viola is a pickup truck. I mean, that's <laughs> just the way it is. It's bigger, it's the strings are thicker and it's more to move around. It, the viola maybe doesn't have power steering or something like that. It's just, it makes it more challenging, I think. Well, for so long, the viola was treated as just a rhythm instrument or sort of doubling the bass line. In the late 1700s, Joseph Haydn is known as the father of the string quartet. He found himself really inspired by the possibilities of conversation between these instruments. And in order to have a conversation, you have to basically be equals. His experiments with the form were inspired by progressive reforms of the day with Franz Josef, the emperor of Austria, relaxing censorship and encouraging free speech in a different way than people were used to. So the string quartet became a real metaphor for that social change happening. Mozart was inspired by Haydn's treatment of the viola in string quartets. They actually played in a composer's string quartet where they would sort of delight each other with their latest innovations. Haydn's writing inspired Mozart, Beethoven took it to the nth degree and just showed what's possible. There's some writing in the Beethoven string quartets for violists that are more tricky and technically difficult than a lot of solo repertoire. Just it's it, it really challenges the player. For so much of the 18th and 19th centuries, the viola was often played by musicians who were not primarily focused on it, with varying results. Wagner once said, The viola, 
is commonly, with rare exceptions, played by infirm violinists, or by decrepit players of wind instruments who happen to have been acquainted with a string instrument once upon a time. That's not to say the viola was without its champions. Take Berlioz, who was originally commissioned to compose a piece for Paganini, who had recently acquired a Stradivarius viola. The result of which led to Herald in Italy, a piece that revolutionarily put the viola as the protagonistic soloist in front of a large orchestra. Despite the growing presence and demands of the instrument in the mid-late 19th century chamber and orchestral music, the status quo of who should play the viola remained vastly unchanged. Berlioz lamented this, saying, It is an antique, absurd, and deplorable prejudice that has hitherto handed over the performance of the tenor part to second- or third-rate violinists. It is to be regretted that there is no special class for the viola. This instrument, notwithstanding its relations to the violin, needs individual study and constant practice if it is to be properly played. It took until later in the 19th century for the idea of the viola as requiring its own formalized instruction to take hold. For example, the Conservatoire de Paris, which opened in 1795, offering violin and cello instruction, did not add viola to the curriculum until 1894, almost a century later. The first professor of viola at the Conservatoire was Théophile Laforge, whose studio created several successful alumni and helped in furthering the development of viola musicianship worldwide. Whatever truth there was in viola jokes throughout history, it's not really there anymore. The level is so high in conservatories and in professional orchestras. I mean, you think about the viola section we have, like here, it's, it's fantastic. Like, Maybe we make jokes about violas because they often represent kind of these funny characters in, in opera and in the symphony stage. I think of the personalities, you know, um, Sancho Panza and, and Don Quixote, the big Strauss cello concerto. It's that, um, I think about Mime and, and, and Siegfried and, and the, all those ring operas. You have to have, for some reason, a member of the band that is the butt of the joke. And right. In rock bands, it's the drummer. And uh, in, I've heard in bluegrass bands, it's always the banjo player. I don't know why. Like, you go to bluegrass festivals, there are banjo jokes. And so we need that in classical music. So, okay. Well, <laughs> what else is it going to be? Maybe it's also because we have the best sense of humor. So Yeah, totally. When I go home to Rosebud, where I'm from, you know, people, people sort of know me. Oh, yeah, Keith, he plays the violin. And, oh, yeah, he plays something else, too. And actually, yeah, it's, it's sort of like a violin. It's a little bit bigger, and here it is. And Many mistake the viola for the slightly smaller violin, which is understandable. It's similarly shaped. It has four strings. It's played with a bow. It's held on the shoulder. It's made even more complicated by the names given to these instruments and how they have changed over time. The word viola, or viol, in 16th century Italy actually referred to any bowed string instrument. And there were a few different families of these evolving over a long period of time. There was the viola da gamba family, 
gamba meaning leg in Italian, which you play between your legs. These came in all sizes and registers, the largest of which evolved into the modern-day double bass. They were typically fretted, flat-backed, tuned in fourths, and had six or sometimes more strings. Then there was the viola di braccio family. Braccio meaning arm in Italian, so the bowed string instruments which you play on your arm. These did not have frets. The backs were arched, they were tuned in fifths, and they also came in a variety of sizes and registers. There were some lesser-known instruments in this family, like the viola d'amore, the viola di spalla, and the arpeggione, which actually shares characteristics from both families. But the most common included the soprano instrument named the violino, or the small viola, what we now call the violin. The tenor viola, which fell out of popularity somewhere in the mid-18th century, and the bass instrument of the group, the violoncello, meaning little big viola in Italian, which actually evolved into the modern-day cello. And finally, the alto viola, which has evolved into what we now call the viola. And it continues to evolve to this day, as both players and makers try to find the solution to a fundamental challenge. If you think of a violin, the size and shape was standardized hundreds of years ago. At some point, they figured out what all the dimensions need to be to maximize the vibrations and projection of that sound that it creates. Every viola is different from the next. There is no standard size. The shape has been experimented with a lot, especially in recent years, because it's fundamentally the wrong size for the notes it plays. What do you mean by that? So the register of a viola is one octave above the cello. And thanks to physics, we should expect a viola to be half the size of a cello in order to play the one octave higher. But if you think about half the size of a cello, like it's too small to play sitting down, but it's too big to play holding it under your chin. So violin viola makers have had to experiment with getting the viola as small as possible to play but also as big as possible to get the right volume of air vibrating to maximize the projection so that you've got as powerful a sound as a violin or, or the cello so that it can compete in work in the balance. 17-inch or longer violas are really heavy. They're stretching your arm out too long. Like, you can play it, but, like, not for too long. So... There's this cost-benefit analysis that you do when you're looking at an instrument. Does it sound good? Or can I, can I hold it? <laughs> can I hold it long enough to practice so that I can sound good? The fact that the viola isn't standardized provides an exciting opportunity for luthiers today and throughout history to be creative and innovative in trying to solve the puzzle of resonance versus playability imposed by the register. Like an ergonomic viola design by luthier David Rivinis, which looks like it's straight out of a Salvador Dali painting. The end result of all this experimentation is every viola sounds totally different, very much like 
we all sound different as we talk or sing. Um, I think violinists, violists, and cellists all try to lay claim to like their instrument is the most like the human voice. Um, I think the viola is most like the quirkiness of the individuality of human voices. You know, every time a violist meets another violist, it's like, oh, what's your instrument? It's really interesting because they're gonna sound different, they're gonna look different. So it's really magical when you can find a viola that is big enough to sound big and light enough, or, you know, it feels right under your chin, on your shoulder, and it speaks really clearly and if you're lucky, has a special color quality that you might sort of fall in love with and it becomes your voice. So we've heard about this stereotype that violists are really violinists who didn't make it. And it's true that many people come to the viola by way of the violin, including both Ethan and Keith. But there are far more practical and nuanced reasons for this. Going back to this imperfect proportions of a viola, if you're a little kid trying to start playing, you might love the sound of a viola that you hear on a stage somewhere, but if you get yourself a half-sized viola or if you get a violin string it up like a viola, it's just not gonna work right. <laughs> Smaller sized violins are much more likely to feel satisfying while you're learning how to play. It's just so much easier to learn the basic techniques and, and to get further with it faster and then transfer those techniques to the larger viola. We know the viola sits in an odd register for its size. And on the topic of register, different instruments use different clefs depending on their register. A clef is kind of like a legend on a map. They're marked at the beginning of every line of notated music, and they indicate what notes the lines and spaces refer to. If you're familiar with piano music, you'll know that the right hand is often written in the treble clef, and the left hand is often in the bass clef. But there are other clefs too. The middle line of the alto clef, for example, is middle C, which falls exactly between the treble and bass clefs. And the viola is the only instrument in the orchestra that uses the alto clef. It's the main stumbling block for violinists actually picking up the viola. If you play the violin, if you're a young person, you play the violin, picking up a viola and learning to read the alto clef and, and taking on that role in your string quartet or in your youth orchestra, it can only be a good thing. It's like the, the challenges associated with the size of it, all of those things will, I think they'll help your violin playing. That's what I've certainly seen. The viola, I think, is more of an ensemble instrument than, than the violin. I think it, it, it's, it's more dependent on, on a shared ensemble experience. And so I think when you're starting out, it'd be great to play chamber music and uh, orchestra immediately, but 
Unfortunately, that's not usually the case. Mostly it's kids scratching away by themselves with their parents and a teacher. And so the violin, I think, lends itself a little more to that. You wouldn't sign your kid up for soccer lessons and make sure that they're practicing 40 minutes a day soccer by themselves. That wouldn't make any sense. And I think that's actually kind of what we do. We, we are playing a team sport as orchestra players and as string players especially. There's not, not a lot of concerto repertoire, unfortunately. Um, I don't think the viola is maybe quite as well suited to the, the concerto stage as some, as the violin or, the, or even the cello, but... How come? Well, you know this as a double bass player. We share this in, in common. We have this kind of funny instrument that's slightly too small. <laughs> and I think that gives... It gives our instruments a really special character. It puts them at a disadvantage as far as concerto playing and, and, and projection, but it has a really special voice. And the best composers are, are composers that really know how to make use of that as a, as a color, whether it's in a string quartet or, or an opera pit or a symphony. Part of what has fueled the viola jokes is what gives the instrument its incredible character. Many famous composers played the viola, including Bach, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, Dvorak, Mendelssohn, Britten, Hindemith, and the list goes on. They also knew how to utilize its voice, which is often described as being rich, melancholic, even chocolatey. There's a real modern renaissance happening where people are exploring what the instrument can do. It's built on the legacy of violists in the early 20th century, like Lionel Turtis and then William Primrose, who helped expand the repertoire, commissioning great pieces from great composers of the day, increasing, expanding the esteem of the viola as a solo instrument. If you look around today, we've got quite a number of internationally recognized viola soloists, like Kim Keshkashian, Tevye Zimmerman, and modern composers demonstrating creativity and ingenuity, like Penderecki, Jorge Widman, some composer friends of mine, like Jennifer Higdon and Alina Ruhr, even performer composers, like Atara Rod, and so many others. There are still so many possibilities for this instrument that for a long time was either ignored or the butt of the joke. But I think it's safe to say that there's never been a better time to be a violist. Ethan and Keith have compiled some Spotify playlists to showcase some great examples of music written for the viola. You can find those as well as links to other resources in the show notes or find it on our website. This episode, you heard Keith Hamm and Julie Hirsch performing Beethoven's Eyeglass Duo for violin and cello. Thank you to our wonderful guests, Ethan Filner and Keith Hamm, who shared their time and voices for this episode. With this being the last episode of season one, We'll take a short break over the summer, and we'll be returning in the fall. 
Thanks to all of you who have been listening in this year, and a special thanks to all those who helped make this happen behind the scenes. I truly appreciate it. And if you or your kids are looking for some fun activities this summer, you might consider the Winspear Center's Sensational Strings Summer Camps, which offer kids ages 6 to 12 the chance to learn and play a musical instrument. Beginners are welcome, instruments are provided, and children will receive both group instruction and individual attention from our qualified teachers. For more details, dates, and how to register, follow the link in the description or visit our website. And if you are a musician yourself looking to tune up your skills, July 7th to 11th, the Rusty Musician Summer Camp at the Winspear Center pairs ESO musicians and other pros with adult campers for five days of classes, rehearsals, sectional instructions, all leading up to a performance on the Winspear stage. You can follow the link in the show notes or visit winspearcenter.com slash rustymusicians to sign up. And don't wait, because some instrument categories have already filled up. And lastly, the Youth Orchestra of Northern Alberta will be holding their 8th annual Road to Joy fundraising concert. It will be live-streamed on the ESO YouTube page on June 8th at 7pm. So make sure to save the date. Everyone is welcome to join the celebration, and you can find more information about how you can support the program at winspearcenter.com. This episode was produced by me. ESO double bassist, Max Cardilli. And if you want to connect with me about the podcast, you can write to eso.offstage at winspearcenter.com. So the personnel manager for an orchestra comes up to the podium at the beginning of the dress rehearsal for a concert and announces that the conductor is sick and the assistant conductor is not available and they are in dire straits and they're looking for volunteers. Does anybody have any experience conducting? They're in a real pinch. They'll take whatever. And the second chair violist meekly raises his hand and the personnel manager sees him and waves him off stage and ushers him off and he goes and he sort of studies the score and he comes back out and does the dress rehearsal and it's kind of okay and then the concert happens that night and it's a huge success and there are a series of concerts following that and the conductor is still sick and so the violist is still conducting and this goes on for a week or two and finally the conductor is back and the violist sits back down in his second chair spot. And the principal looks over at him and says, where have you been all week? <laughs> That's my favorite one. Yeah. <laughs>